12. Mark chapter 12, I want to read verses 28 to 34. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come uh, to your word. I pray that you would grant to us uh, your Holy Spirit in such a way that uh, enables us to not only understand with our mind, but to embrace this word in our hearts, that it might transform us, it might bring to us all the grace to do that which it requires. And this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important, the most important one answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, you're right in saying that God is, the, is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, I wanted to linger in this uh, passage one more week. We began this last week. If you weren't here, you missed it. But if you were here, I suspect there's some recollection of, of, of the point. And I think last week we dealt with this passage in the way that the Holy Spirit, through uh, Mark, uh, intended, that is, for us to see that this man was near to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not a matter of externals but a matter of the heart. And this man came, came to see that. He came to see that it wasn't a matter of externals, but rather uh, it was a matter of the heart and always was that way throughout the scriptures, that that was God's intention. Others in this man's party of the Pharisees didn't see that. They concentrated their attention on the externals, took assurance that they belonged to God because they were children of Abraham, because they had the law, because they had the temple, because of many externals because they had been circumcised but but now uh, this man realizes that the kingdom of God the kingdom of heaven belonging to God is a matter is a matter of the heart but I want to move on from that or move from that because we realized that uh, last Sunday uh, begged a very important question and that important question which we did take up last week was that if the kingdom of God is a matter of the heart, and if it's a matter of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, then who can do that? We remember this rich young man that came to Jesus. We've talked of him before. He comes to Jesus and he said that he had obeyed all the commandments, most especially those about loving one's neighbor. And so Jesus looked at him knowing his heart and tested him extremely. That is, he put before him the most extreme test of love for God and love for neighbor that one could ever imagine. And he said to this man, he says, all right, go out and sell all that you have, give to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And that's that extreme test. Who could love 
like that, God says, I want you to leave everything behind and love God sufficiently to follow me. And I want also for you to love your neighbor so greatly that you're as concerned about their needs being met as your own. Thus, you sell all that you have so that their needs might be met. Scripture says the man went away sad. Thus, as I think about these verses that I shared with you last week, I melt before them because I realize how insufficient, how ineffective, how unaffectionate my love for God is and my love for my neighbor who could ever obey such commands because it's not simply a matter of externals we know it's just not simply a matter of external acts it's a matter of the heart it's a matter of the affections because while love is more than feelings it's certainly not less because as I mentioned during the offering time love is not duty love delights in sacrificing for the one loved it doesn't simply make that sacrifice love delights in that sacrifice. And love isn't a matter of what some in ancient days have called enlightened self-interest, that is, having doing a loving act means it's going to go better for you. Uh, we do that quite often. Children grow up learning that, that if they obey mom and dad in certain instances, then life is just easier, and so it just makes more sense to do that. That isn't love, and it's not really duty. We call it enlightened self-interest. And loving acts can often be that, but the joy, the delight that comes, not in, in knowing that a need is met in another, but that a need is met in you. That life is easier, that you're affirmed, that life goes well, therefore. But that's not really love. Love delights. Love finds its joy in the happiness, in the well-being of another. And so the call to love is convicting and we ask, well then, if the kingdom of God necessitates loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, if the kingdom of God necessitates me loving my neighbor as myself, then I'm sunk. Because who can love like that? Save, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who loved his Father perfectly. He says, I've come not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. He says, I... I, I I only say those things I've heard the Father say. I only do those things I hear the Father doing. I've come to glorify Him. And He does. And His love is without measure because He gave His life not only for His friends, but for His enemies. For it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. So what hope have we? We have hope in Christ, in fact, we sang it just a little while ago in, in a wonderful old hymn. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is to say, my hope isn't in my ability to obey these commandments. My hope is in the fact that Christ has. My hope is in His righteousness so that when I stand before God, united to Him, it's His righteousness in which I stand. He did it. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He did it. And because he is my representative before God, he is my high priest. He is the one in whom I stand before God. Then I stand in his righteousness. So my hope is in not my righteousness, 
but his. And my hope is in his blood. That is to say, for my sin, for what I deserve, for the punishment I deserve because of not loving God from my heart, not loving my neighbor from my heart, that his blood, his sacrifice, his death, the hell he took was mine. Thus, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. You see, these commands first and foremost convict us. That's my description. I melt before them. As Isaiah, when he, when he saw his own sin, when he saw the holiness of God, he, was, he, he said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. And he says, I'm ruined. In one sense, these verses, these commandments, utterly ruin us. They convict us of our sin if we're going to be honest, really. And we wonder, is there any hope? And the answer is yes, there's hope in Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood, his sacrifice, his death to take the penalty of my sin and his righteousness, his doing all of these things for me. Thus I stand in him, forgiven, pardoned, accepted by God. But, is there any more for these commandments? If the kingdom of God means that it's of the heart to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and yes, we stand in the blood of righteousness of Christ. Is there any more for these commandments? The answer is no and yes. No, in one sense, because these commandments continue to convict us through the course of our lives. There's, there's no time that I ever can say, oh, I just loved perfectly God and other people. So they still send me, drive me to my knees in confession and trust dependence on the blood of righteousness, blood and righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else about these commandments as well. Because there's at least two purposes for commandments. You could list more, but there's at least two. One is certainly to convict us of our sin. But the second is to lead and guide our lives. If I ask you, what's the will of God for your life? How would you respond? Now, now sometimes we hear that question. We think about things like who I'm supposed to marry and what I'm supposed to do for a living and, and what house I'm supposed to buy and da 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 all those kinds of subjective wills of God for my life. And I say subjective because they're difficult to verify. Often students come to my office and say, I believe God's leading me to major in accounting. And, and I think, oh, God's kinder than that. No, I don't say that. <laughs> all your accountants out there. And, and do I know the answer to that question? No. I mean, I don't know that. I mean, we can talk about the wisdom of that, and we can talk about all kinds of generalities about that and, and narrow it some, but can I conclusively affirm to them that their God is calling them to be an accountant? Not, not really. Not as I have some special word from God, and it generally doesn't give that for accountancy. Someone comes to my office and says, I, I, I think I want to marry this person. Well, there's some generalities we can talk about this. Is this person a Christian? Are you equally yoked? Da, 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 da. We can talk about a number of things about that, but, but, but I can say for certain that the will of God for your life and mine is to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know for certain at every moment in time that the will of God for my life and yours is that we love our neighbor 
as ourselves. In fact, right now, what's the will of God for you? It's to love Him as you sit. It's to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you, is that leading you now? From your heart is your affection towards Him? Is your desire to hear from Him? Is your desire to honor Him? And, your desire, and, your, and, and, and the will of God for you is to love your neighbor as yourself. Stop poking Him. <laughs> Let Him listen. You see, Don't be annoying to the person sitting beside you. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, even now as you sit here, I know that's the will of God for your life. Now how that actually plays out, and whether you cross your legs or whether you don't, whether you take notes or whether you do, or whether you whisper to the person, hey, that was really a good point. I, I don't know what form that exactly takes. But I know His will for you. He guides us. He leads us through these commandments. And so they still survive though fulfilled in Christ. They still survive to lead us, to guide us, to help us, to instruct us, to define for us our very lives. Uh, Jesus makes note of this. For instance, in, in Matthew in chapter 10, pardon me, I'm breaking in a new Bible. You saw the one, my other one just died. Matthew 10, verse 37. Jesus said, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He said, listen, if you want to follow me, you must love me. So still we must love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, in chapter 16, verse 22. He says, if anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. That's strong language. That isn't just a suggestion that we love Christ. Because he's saying if you don't love him, a curse, a curse be on you. Um, we read, for instance, in uh, James in chapter 1 and verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. We're to love him. You remember as Jesus is walking amongst the churches in the book of Revelation when he comes to the church in Ephesus, he says this yet, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. That's not a good thing. Still they were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. We're to love for certain. We're to love each other. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Uh, it's the mark of the Christian even. You remember as Jesus is with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he says, by this all men will know that you are my uh, disciples if you have love for each other. Paul writes, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. In glory our faith will be sight. In glory our hope will be realized. And in glory, we'll continue to love perfectly God and each other. In Romans, in chapter 13, the apostle writes this, verse 8, that no debt remain outstanding except continuing, the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandments there may be, 
are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, uh, love is the fulfillment of the law. He says, here's the law. It's given not only to convict you of your sin, but also to lead you. And so follow it now. In fact, in chapter 12, he says this in verse 9, love must be sincere. He speaks to us about love. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. All of these related to how we're to love each other. Bless those. Um, uh, verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. That's, that's love for your enemies. Bless, don't curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's love for people who are happy. Mourn with those who mourn. That's love for those who are sad. Live in harmony with others. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. That's love them. Don't be conceited. Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone, which means love them. Don't take revenge. Rather, it doesn't say it here, but I'll add it because it's consistent. Love them. God will deal with the vengeance part. You, it's your call to love them. So if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's what we're to do, you see. Uh, James summarizes it probably most completely. I'm sorry, not James, but First John summarizes this most, first, uh, uh, most completely throughout the whole epistle. But in First John chapter 4, verse 7, John writes, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Then, in verse 19, he says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar for anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think it's clear, continually, we are as believers, most especially, to love God from our hearts and to love each other. Okay, now, before I continue, you're going to have to work with me on something. Because there's a great danger here that I face as a preacher. Normally, I don't ask you to feel my pain as a preacher. But today, you need to understand the dilemma with which, under which, with which I preach. And that dilemma is this. Some of you, no matter what I say, will draw the conclusion that you're worse than everybody else because you don't love as much as everybody else does and you'll leave here under a great heap of guilt. If you're feeling guilty for not loving God or your neighbor, trust in the blood, of right, uh, blood and righteousness of Christ. I'm not saying that you're a horrible person if you don't love like this. So you didn't hear that from me. I'm just saying you're a person. Even a Christian. And so trust, hope in, the blood and righteousness of Christ. Because you see, if you don't, if you leave here under guilt, and you don't trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ, then you're liable to do that which is very unhelpful for you. That is, you leave here and go, well, I guess I'm worse than everybody else. I can't be a Christian, so I'll just forget it. That's not the point at all. Allow the text, allow the commandments to convict you. Turn your heart to Christ. Trust in Him. 
Or you may just simply mope. I don't like moping. Mope until you forget about it, and the sting is gone, and then you'll just sort of get on with life. Or what may be the worst thing of all, under this guilt, you may leave here and start doing a number of loving acts. Now, not that loving acts are wrong, but if loving acts are done out of guilt and duty, it's not love anyway, and you'll have a false sense of assurance, and you'll have missed the real work that needs to be done. Okay? That's a great danger, loving acts. So don't leave here under that guilt. If you leave here under that guilt, may I say kindly and affectionately, that's your fault. Not mine. That's not what I mean. You've misunderstood me. If you're under guilt, trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ, and he takes it. No excuse there. The second problem is that some are going to think that unless, that I'm saying, that if you're really a Christian, you will love perfectly. Because I am going to say that our obligation, responsibility, life calling is to love. We can't shirk it. We must love God and we must love our neighbor. We can't get around that. But I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you're going to do that perfectly. In fact, if you're a Christian, you're going to know even more intensely and how imperfectly you're doing that. If you think you're doing it perfectly enough, you're not a Christian. You don't get it. You don't understand the holiness of God. You don't understand what love really is for him from the heart. But as a Christian, you see, we're called to do it, and, it's, and we know it, and we need to grip that with all of our might. But yet we also realize we're not going to do it perfectly. In fact, sometimes those people who look like they're doing it better than others aren't. They're not growing in love as much as another. Some people seem to be very patient, for instance. But it could be that they just don't care. And other people that seem really impatient may have grown in patience by leaps and bounds. You should have seen them last year. And some people that appear to be very loving may be appearing to be very loving because of guilt or perhaps upbringing or habit. They just do these things. They're just that kind of person. Whereas a person who's come from a heart of extreme bitterness and anger and unlovingness might just be loving a little because they smiled at you instead of frowned. And that's the work of God, you see. They're growing in love. And so we have to be very careful on how we evaluate these things. But don't leave under a heap of guilt. And if you do, it's because you're not trusting in the blood and righteousness of Christ. And don't think I'm saying that if you don't do this perfectly, then you're not a Christian. All right. You can work with me now? I'll tell you the rest. If you get that, then I can tell you, I can, I can level with you about these commandments leading us and guiding us so that we can follow them because we have great hope. We have great hope that these commandments won't simply convict us, they'll do that. But we have great hope that these commandments can lead us and guide us. In fact, we see that great hope as it develops 
through the Old Testament promises. Let me just give you a couple. Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 33, as, as, Jesus, as God is telling of his new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to put these laws in our minds in such a way that we have them memorized and they just come out of our mouths. What he's saying is, I'm going to take your heart that is contrary to following me and I'm going to write my law on it so it's, it's a part of your very being, it's a part of your very heart, it's a part of your very inclination, it's a part of your very desire. That's what I'm going to do. And thus Ezekiel gives us more clarity in Ezekiel in chapter 36 and verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you. Some of you have New American Standards, which I, I think translates this as, and cause you to walk, to, to, and cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. See, God says in the context of this Spirit, Holy Spirit coming upon us that we'll have a new heart, new desires, new inclinations. The New Testament speaks of it like this, for instance, in John in chapter 1 and verse 12. The Apostle writes for us this. He says, Yet to all, those, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Something is happening, something changes, something happens when we're born again, when we're converted. We have a new heart, you see. We're children of God. Jesus discusses this with Nicodemus over in chapter 3 of John chapter 3. He says, I tell you the truth, verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he's old, Nicodemus asks. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying, listen. When you enter into this relationship with me, we describe that like this. You're born anew. You're born of the Holy Spirit. All that Jeremiah spoke of, all that Ezekiel spoke of, comes true in you. That your heart is changed. It isn't that you just simply make a decision with your mind to believe in Jesus. It's that your heart changes. Your inclinations, your disposition changes so you embrace Christ. So God is at work in your heart, in your affections, to follow Him. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 6. Turn to that. In Romans in chapter 6, he tells us that on the cross, something happened. A decisive blow to sin happened, which freed we can say this a couple of ways. 
which freed all those who were in Christ, or we could say it equivalently, all those who would believe in Christ. It freed them from not only the penalty of the sin, but also its dominion, also its rule and reign. For instance, Romans 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? He's saying that would be silly. You don't understand. You don't understand continuing to live without love for God or without love for each other. You don't understand that. Because let me tell you what happened on the cross. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Well, don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We're therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with. He's saying, listen, you were united to Christ. Believers in Christ were united to Christ on the cross, hooked in Him. So, whatever happened to Him happened to you. There's a sense in which, and this is a crude example, but it's somewhat helpful, there's a sense in which Jesus had power of attorney. That whatever He signed, we signed. Whatever He said okay to, we said okay to. Whatever happened to Him happened to us. Whatever He did happens to us because He is our our representative and we're united to him. Just like in the old days, Adam was our representative and we were stuck with him. Now, Jesus is our representative. And we're united, you see, because we're united to him. So when he died to the penalty of our sin, we died to the penalty of our sin. And what the power of sin over us is that penalty. It dictates our destiny to be condemned, to be estranged from God. And when we died from it, we're free, you see. And so he said, our old self was crucified. You know that old great hymn, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I don't know what the point is of that, exactly what point they meant by that, but the answer to that from Romans 6 is yes. If you're a believer in Christ, you were there because you were united with him. And your old self, that is the sinful self, the self that's represented by Adam and his sin, died. So that the body of sin, your sinful nature, can be, it says, done away with. What does that mean? The next phrase explains that, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Sin still resides in us. We still have sinful inclinations. But they no longer rule us because of the work of Christ. So then in verse 11, we're called to faith. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That means believe. To count yourself dead to sin is to have faith that what Paul now says happened on the cross, happened on the cross. He says, believe it. He's not telling us to do anything. He's saying, believe it. Trust that your old self really did die. And he said, but it doesn't feel that way. And he says, I didn't say it was going to feel that way. I said, count it that way. Trust it that way. Faith that is seen is not faith. <laughs> Believe it. That's really what happened. Now, he says, therefore, live by faith. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. 
don't offer the parts of your body to sin as in instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Something happened. So much so that Paul could say in Galatians 2.20 this. He could say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now you say, Paul, you're, you're alive. What are you saying? You were crucified and died. Well, he was crucified with Christ in the sense that when Christ died, he died. In the sense that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified with him to die to sin. And so he could say, I've been crucified with Christ and I, my old self, no longer lives. Yet, he says, the life I live, I thought you were dead, Paul. He says, well, my old self die but the new self has risen and so the life that I this new self Paul with yes sinful inclinations but not ruling and reigning sinful inclinations I live by faith I count myself I consider myself dead to sin but alive to God that's how I now live that's why I say we have good hope Yes, these commandments to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself convict us. But we trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ. But that very work of Christ through his blood and righteousness is that very thing which changes my heart. And thus a changed heart, though not perfected, I, I, have, I can give you references to prove I'm not yet perfected. All right? Not perfected, but changed different, different desires so much so that I'm convicted by those verses and I trust in the righteousness and blood of Christ so much so that I see those verses and they don't only convict me but they, they're, they're aspiration for me I desire now them I'm out of time so I'll put that away now We have good hope, you see. Not only to be convicted by these verses, but to live them out. And so now you see the direction of my life, the very direction of my life, the focus of my attention, the question I ask all the time, how is it that I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? How is it that I'm to love my neighbor as myself? If I ask you, to list your needs, what would they include? You might list food, you might list sleep, measures of health, companionship, the sense of being loved, but don't leave out these two needs that we have for life. Needs, requirements, needs, that which is necessary for me to really live. We concentrate so much on the need that we have to be loved, but do we understand that God tells us the two primary needs that we have, that we must pursue, is to love Him and to love others. What do you need to live? I suppose we could say we need to be loved, but... We mustn't forget, we need to love.
lest we die, lest there be no life in us. In my life, I can't speak for you at this point, because I don't know if this is true, really, absolutely, but it's true for me. I'm most miserable when I'm not loving God. I'm most miserable when I'm self-centered and not loving others. I cease, in a sense, to really live. But we have good hope. Why? Because the grace of God, Titus tells us, Paul tells us in Titus, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. The very grace of God that saves empowers us to say no to selfishness, to say no to self-centeredness, and to say yes to God. Let me leave you with one final prayer. Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So you see, our love grows. It isn't stagnant and it isn't perfected at justification when we're at conversion, but it grows. And so Paul prays for the church in Philippi, pray for me, I pray for you, that love would abound, would grow more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that it, our love would become more discerning how it is that we're to love God, how it is that we're to love each other. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me, Father in heaven. I do pray that none of us leaves here without realizing our spiritual bankruptcy in obeying these commands. And on our own, we can't. They simply condemn us. So I pray none leaves this place without a knowledge of and without an experience of the blood and righteousness of Christ, the hope that comes that we could all grab a hold and believe but I pray too that none who know of the blood and righteousness of Christ would fail to see now the life calling the leading of the Holy Spirit the transformation of the Holy Spirit in us to cause us to love and I pray Father for us that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that it would become greater and greater and more discerning and more understanding so that we'd be able to discern what's best and so we would love best and that we might be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus that righteousness that covers us that righteousness that consumes us and this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you of our Sunday school classes. I remind you of the Grace House tour that will take place. If you're new to us and want to know more about our
church, there's a group of people who will meet you out in the narthex and take you around and show you around and so forth. Remind you of our Sunday school classes, our elders available to pray also. And also the um, response to the benediction, thanks be to God, hallelujah. Now it's Thanksgiving time, but more than that, if you're thankful that God has so worked in you that you now, however imperfectly, can love him, and that God has so worked in you to take your eyes away from yourself and actually love others. If that's the joy of your life, then this response, thanks be to God, hallelujah, should come from your lips. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. Hallelujah.